Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 45, where we're traveling back to 1987 and the 41st winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, John Harbison, for The Flight into Egypt. So, Andrew, we're back after a long hiatus, summer hiatus. Going to the beach. Going to the beach, right, in Kansas City. Uh, Ready to get back into things and try to finish out the 1980s here. That's right. So, first, uh, what are your experiences with the winner of uh, this year, 1987, John Harbison? So, I was in grad school, and he had just written an opera, The Great Gatsby. Yes. Performed at the Met, comes to the Chicago Lyric. I'm in Urbana-Champaign for grad school. So, my wife and I drive up, go to the Chicago Lyric, and see The Great Gatsby. Was he there? No, it was oh, the, middle of the run. Oh, because it would have been New York. Yeah, well, it was also yeah. middle of the run, and yeah. you know, we were like nosebleed seats because we were poor <laughs> grad students, what we could uh, get. But that was the first time I'd actually ever heard his name hmm. was in grad school. I didn't, expect, I didn't encounter him as an undergrad. So that was my first experience, um, was that experiencing that piece. And then once I started taking you know, classes in grad school, that was pretty early on in my grad career, I started hearing some of his pieces would pop up and he'd be talked about in American music class, that kind of thing, as a grad student. Mm -hmm. What about you? Uh, So I was a horn player in my former life, and uh, Harbison wrote a couple of brass quintets. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a a cool piece, a Christmas suite, a a Christmas brass quintet, and we played that. Uh, Connected to today's piece. uh, In fact, that's right. Kind of. This was a positive side, though. This was the good stuff of Christmas. Uh, Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I played a couple of his brass pieces, and... Then when I was a, a, a rookie theory professor, uh, one of his pieces was in the Burkhart Anthology. Mm. For, it was a piece, variations for clarinet, violin, and piano, I think. So I remember teaching. That was a living composer yeah. and kind of exciting at that time. So, But I, apart from that, not much. And I knew he taught at MIT. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was, those were the main things I knew. Sounds like we both need to hear the story, so let's move to telling the story. Telling the story. All right, so Harbison is one of these characters. So we've been talking about this in the 1980s, that we have this shift back towards kind of tonality, um, these composers that are bringing in all of this different music and using it in their style. And Harbison is kind of continuing that trend, but also, I mean, kind of continuing the trend from our last winner, George Pearl, in being a little bit more hardcore in terms of the theoretical construction of his music. Yes, definitely. And I think you can see a lot of that through his training uh, and he, his influences. He talks about it and mm-hmm. uh, his interest in Stravinsky, Schoenberg, kind of the, the hard, uh, like you said, the, the harder composers, uh, but also in his training. So studying at those types of schools, studying at Harvard and in uh, Princeton. So uh, I know there's a little, a cool little, biographical thing we have to mention here. So in 1954, he won the BMI Award for Composition, his Capriccio for Trumpet and Piano, when he was just 15. So 
Yeah, very musical family. Yes, precocious. Very precocious. Yeah. Um, and when he goes to Harvard as an undergrad, he studies with former winner of the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> two-time winner. Two-time winner, Walter Fiston. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then he goes to Princeton for his master's degree where he studies with Roger, Roger Sessions. Sessions. So we're seeing a clear yeah. lineage, but also Milton Babbitt. And, you know, but these are composers who were at the forefront of, in terms of the way that we kind of conceptualize them now, very um, excellent craftsmen as composers. And I think that's what we're going to see with Harbison. And that's kind of how I've, the, the impression I've always had of his music, that here is like really an expert craftsman. But the thing that's always struck me because, I mean, Gatsby was my first experience yeah. with him. And in there, in addition to kind of what we would think of as traditional modern operatic writing, there's popular song and there's yes. jazz influence, right? So there's that aspect too, which, you know, to my young mind was like, how do you reconcile these? Someone who's kind of in the popular world, but then also someone who's over here in the more kind of intellectual academic world. That's very much what he's been trying to do in his music. Exactly. And I think some of it comes from his background. He talks, uh, we'll plug this a little bit later, but we had an interview with him and he talks about his interest growing up in jazz and playing the tuba mm-hmm. and playing in band yep. and, and having that different kind of experience. So it is there is an eclecticism, even though, Predominantly, it's more the Sessions, Babbitt, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. But uh, it, these things do crop up. And I actually bought the. You couldn't. You still can't find the Great Gatsby. I don't, I, it's very hard to find. So I remember buying the CD a few years ago because I wanted to hear mm-hmm. it. And they are these stylized twenties, yeah, like foxtrots and charlestons, and they're pretty cool. They That's, are, and they work really effectively on stage. I bet. Because it's just like this break and suddenly you're like there in the time and then they step back and they start singing normal kind yeah. of modern opera. It's really interesting. I'm also curious, you know, we were doing our research, getting ready for this, and uh, found this quote where Harbison was talking about how he just divides composition and thinks about composers historically. Mm. Um, And he divides them to what he calls personality composers (laughs) and philosophic composers. And he says that he's a philosophic composer. But, I mean, what do you think, when you hear this, what do you think? Mm. Personality versus philosophic composer. Yeah, interesting. I'm trying to think of somebody like Charles Ives, former winner Charles Mm -hmm. E. Ives. I think he was a very philosophical composer, but he also had a pretty interesting personality to go with it. But I I could see that. In the specifically he says Stravinsky's rhythmic character, inventiveness and eclecticism attracted him. So is that more of a personality? I think where Schoenberg's more of a like a, a big picture logical, heady kind of oh, composer. I think you would say Schoenberg is and Stravinsky both would be philosophic composers. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear personality composers, and I think someone like um, Leonard Bernstein has been in the news yes, recently. That's so true. Not that that doesn't mean he's a great composer. It's just that a lot of his success is due to the strength of his personality True. as well as the strength of his music. True. Um, and the communication instead of, well, I think philosophic is, you know, thinking through all of these issues and coming up with new ways to approach the music and that sort of thing. Mm. Thinking about some of our recent Pulitzer Prize winners, so someone like George Pearl would be a very philosophic. Very philosophic. Yeah, whereas someone like... Maybe Stephen Alpert would be a personality. It's just kind of work our yeah, way back through yeah, the yeah, 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating distinction That's to have. It's an interesting way to think through kind of the history of composition over the past 100, 200 yeah, years. definitely. One other thing before we get into the piece, and this relates very much to the piece, is that he's at Harbison is into, into choirs, mm-hmm. and this he's uh, been the musical director of this group, the Cantata Singers, since the early 70s. And it's 
pretty neat. It's actually a community chorus which has volunteers. It's quite good, as you'll hear in recordings, uh, but it, it attracts all sorts of people. Now, of course, he's based in Boston. So he's right there. Yeah, yeah. and Boston has so many great music schools, mm-hmm. early music programs, it's just so much musical culture there. So it's not like you're in rural Iowa or something, but it's still pretty great. So I think there's a lot of choral music that uh, or voice has always been attractive, attractive to Harbison too, mm-hmm. as it is in this piece. Yeah, and that group, the Cantata Singers, that he was—I mean, twice he was the musical uh, director for them—establishes this connection with them, which is why they're ultimately going to come to him to commission a work that ultimately is going to win in the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> so let's go behind the notes. Behind the notes. So the flight into Egypt is our piece of the day here. Uh, so what? maybe we should start with the text, or it's a text, or what mm-hmm. is this piece about? What is the flight into Egypt? Is it, I'm flying from Kansas City to Cairo, or... It's like Indiana Jones, you like, see the little <laughs> dotted line on the map, you're flying into Egypt. Yeah, is that what it's going about? Going to the pyramids? No, this no. is, <laughs> as we kind of alluded to earlier, it's a Christmas story, mm-hmm. but it's the dark side of Christmas. So this is the story of... Um, when in the Bible, King Herod comes and he's going to kill all the children under two so that he can get rid of this person who is going to rise up to be the king of Israel, has been prophesied. He hears about this from the wise men. So Mary and Joseph pack up little baby Jesus and they <laughs> go to Egypt so they can avoid being killed. Uh, so this is the story. I mean, that's a pretty dark story of Christmas yeah. of infanticide and <laughs> having to flee into exile into a neighboring country. Um, and that's the story that he wanted to tell. They don't teach this one on uh, typical Christmas carols. This is not in the Christmas pageant. Not in the Christmas, <laughs> Charlie Brown Christmas. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, but but as we find out, uh, there, and Harbison mentions in his program notes, that he's not the first one to have written pieces on this uh, subject. Schutz was a, a mm-hmm. big one, and Schutz will come up later in our discussion. I'll... I'll give you some stuff about that later. And it's also noted notable that he's using the actual biblical text. Correct. I was so following it right as the... It is line yeah. by line. So it's not like he is he writing a text or getting a text from someone else. He's just taking the biblical story and putting it unadorned directly into the cantata, which is unusual. Yeah, it is. It is I, I found it was King James Version, mm-hmm. so I just got it up online and listened to the piece and was yeah amazed. It's exactly... The text. Line by line. Yeah, yeah. So it's for a pair of soloists. You have a soprano and a baritone. You've got the SATB chorus, which originally was the uh, the cantata singers, and then an orchestra with two oboes, English horn, bassoon, three trombones, which are really mm-hmm. prominent, an organ, which you also hear quite a bit, and strings. So kind of an unusual instrumentation, chamber orchestra. So... Uh, the music itself, and, and it's 14 minutes thereabouts in one big movement. And I want to know what you think. Do you call it, it's been labeled as a cantata or some sort of vocal? What is yeah. this piece? So yeah. cantata, oratorio. Oratorio, I mean, it, yeah, it yeah. Had, I mean, there are a lot of terms you could use. It has the soloists. It has a narrator. It has a chorus. It has an orchestra. It's oratorio like that. He called it a sacred reacher car. Mm. Which is pretty esoteric for yeah. most listeners. Philosophic your car, um, but you know, reach a car is basically an imitative work. Yeah, like a um, fancy f- early fugue, like an early fugue. Yeah, so that's how he labels it. 
this is what it's hard because when I think of oratoria, I usually think bigger. Yeah. I hear cantata, I think multi movement. This is short and to the point. Like it was over before I expected it. Right. When I was listening to it, I was like, that was it. Yeah. Like I expected, especially we've been looking at a lot of big works winning the Pulitzer Prize recently. Yep. So 14 minutes. So for me, I mean, it's almost like an extended set piece. So it's it's an interesting kind of uh, new approach to this style in many ways. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking back on some of our vocal pieces. We haven't had too many win recently uh, that I can remember. So it's not in this style either. Right. So it is kind of a unique, sweet, generous style mm-hmm. piece uh, to have it have it this way. The sacred. It's definitely sacred. Obviously, it's from the Bible. But he talks about you know, there's a bunch of motives that you hear mm-hmm. throughout, and he says from the opening notes it seeks a sense of loss and a wandering stasis. So not only are there these motives, but there's a lot of uh, ostinatos mm-hmm. and kind of this underlying churn. Yeah, I wanted to play the beginning, not the very beginning, but about 30 seconds in so you can hear some of that wandering stasis and, and how he creates it. Yeah, and it's put in just moves from instrument to instrument. You keep getting instruments coming in one by one, one by one. Imitative. And because they're all imitating this very short little motive, it feels like it's going somewhere, but it doesn't go anywhere. No. And this is like the first two minutes of the piece. Like of a 14-minute movement, this is a lot of real estate to give to this motive (laughs) to set up this kind of feeling of as he calls it, wandering stasis. Mm-hmm. And then, so you have that, but then you also have, to me, a lot of the piece feels very segmented. Mm-hmm. And so you've got, to, what really stands out of these trombone licks yeah. and bump, 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 kind of the honking trombone sound. It, this piece, and I, I, I see the Stravinsky influence because it reminds me of those late Stravinsky sacred pieces like, the like requiem canticles yes and, yeah, I, abraham and isaac yeah. uh those kinds of pieces that are very sectional very mm-hmm. imitative uh when stravinsky was getting more esoteric and yeah. and it, it seems to follow that and he uses trombone and brass in that way too well the orchestration carries so much weight in this piece yeah so i mean you're talking about the trombones you have this kind of talking about a philosophic approach yeah. i mean that goes back ancient, the use of the trombone in a sacred setting. So he's very much drawing from that historical tradition, but the way he's using them, like you're saying with Stravinsky, in these kind of short little motives, the kind of, I mean, the rhythms are all over the place. Jagged. They're very jagged. Um, So you get this kind of old and new merging in this piece very clearly. Yeah, and interesting point there about the orchestration being kind of what you hear. I when I'm listening to this, I find it that the voice sometimes gets swallowed oh, yeah. by all this the stuff going on. So I wanted to play a little bit of those trombones. Yeah, yeah, I love <laughs> this, the trombones. This little trombone <laughs> motive that re- returns, I think, is really wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. 
good. You gotta love a good trombone gliss. You gotta uh, love a good trombone gliss. Rip. But the other thing is, I mean, in that you can in that little excerpt, you can hear the kind of ragged rhythms, jagged rhythms mm-hmm. we were talking about. You can hear the meter shifting all over the place. Um, but you can also hear that, I mean, the vocal line is going, you can hear the vocal line, but I kept losing what the vocal line was doing because I was so fascinated by what was going on in the instrumentation. Yes, yes, definitely. And so I, I'm, I don't know enough about Harbison's music, but I'm not sure if his... If he's like a like the like Wagner or someone where the instruments are always he's an instrumental writer by nature, uh, even though he's done a lot of choral work because it certainly seems that way here, mm-hmm. and especially because the person is singing a straight text, just reading, yeah. and there's a narrator too. There's some narrative parts mm-hmm. as well, so it's an interesting mixture of stuff. It's kind of eclectic, like his music is. It is and his philosophy. Yeah, I, there was so much. I even brought in three clips because oh, great. Yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. just so many different things going yeah. on. And I thought it was important to hear the choir and yes. the way he's using the choir because I think there's also some interesting things to pull out there. So this is just uh, a little section uh, of the choral part, basically at the climax. So you can hear the imitative thing that we're talking yep. about, the reacher car, so the imitative parts, um, very modern in terms of the range he's asking these singers, <laughs> and they're jumping all over the place. I think one of our reviewers will have a comment about the vocal <laughs> writing later. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, to me, if I was putting it in, in order of kind of where my ear went, first is the instrumentation, the mm-hmm. orchestration. Uh, second would be the soloist, and the choir would actually be at the bottom, which is interesting to me, because I see this as written for the cantata singers, it's written for a choral group, but that seems to me to be the mm. least interesting portion of the entire piece, at least what my ears just kind of naturally gravitated towards. I, I don't even know when they come in. It's what, like in, in the 14 minutes, it's not for a while. It's not. Like it, takes you, a, it is a while before they enter. You don't even know that there's a choir, and then all mm-hmm. of a sudden they're there, and it's, oh, yeah, they're, they're singing, yeah. And then there's this organ, too, that's under a lot of mm-hmm. the... The parts as well, yeah. And in terms of the pitch material, it's I, it's very hard for me to follow or figure out what's happening. I think it is sort of freely atonal, or sort of it's definitely not tonal. It's, it's sort of all over the place, uh, but motivic, absolutely very, motivic, very much. And that's that's that Schoenberg influence, perhaps, or Stravinsky. Taking. Well, I think you have the Stravinsky rhythm, the Stravinsky yeah. form, and you have the Schoenberg harmony. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's kind of the way I was understanding it was listening to it. Yeah, it's a good combination. Well, should we see what everybody else thought about the flight into Egypt? Hit or miss? So Harbison didn't even know he was nominated for this award, which I think is the best thing about it. We've had so many good stories, but so this many is good a good stories. one. This is a good one. Um, evidently, when he won, the, uh, did an interview with the LA Times, and he said, I had no idea anything of mine had been submitted. I was not even conscious of the possibility existing. <laughs> which in many ways is like the best thing. Because he said, I guess you look at the zen of the situation. When you care the least about something, it's most likely to happen. Yeah totally true that's totally true in life yeah. totally true but evidently <laughs> the publisher uh, had come to him and said do you have anything you want to submit and he said i've got nothing big right mm. that's the thing he yeah. thought it needs to be a big substantial work i've got nothing the publisher then without telling him thought well 
let's try this. This is a, a strong piece. We should submit it. And I'm sure Harbison thought just like we did, yeah, small works are never going to win. A 14-minute work like this, it needs right. to be an hour long if it's going to win. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and to that point, its premiere was on November 21st, 1986 with the Cantata Singers, and it was one of many pieces. So mm-hmm. you had two Bach cantatas. There, were, there was a Bach cantata, Wacket Auf began it, and then it ended with a different one. And then you have Flight into Egypt, Intermission, then a bunch of Schutz. So lots of pieces by Schutz in, in between and the ending with Bach. So you have him kind of being the, is it the new, new piece or is he a historical mm-hmm. type composer here? In his well, they're not called the cantata singers for nothing. That's true. That's, that's why they got started to sing Bach cantatas. That's right. But I think you can tell the connections that he had, Harbison as a composer, with music like Bach and Schutz. Oh, yeah. And that it, that program actually makes perfect sense. It does. I, I think it, you could make a playlist and it would probably work very well mm-hmm. uh, and, and wouldn't sound all that out because Schutz can sound kind of yeah, no, ragged absolutely. and interesting too. So, yeah, that's great. Uh, so the jury report from April 6th, 1987, they unanimously recommended that flight, they called it Flight into Egypt, uh, be awarded the prize. It makes a powerful and direct expressive statement with economical, musical, and instrumental resources. The music is clear in design, apt in its treatment of the vocal and choral forces, and eminently appropriate to the text. So how do we feel about that? I think that's true. I actually, us talking about it being this very small work and how they usually don't award small works, here they're saying that that's actually one of the things that drew them to it. Right. The compact economy of the composition, which I would completely agree with. Economical. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the second choice of the jury was Flower of the Mountain by previous Pulitzer Prize winner, Stephen Albert. And that and talks about as another James Joyce-related mm-hmm. piece like like the one that we talked about. So the jury, let's see. Any one of, uh, have any guesses? There are two former winners and one critic. Roger Sessions. No, oh. no. Because <laughs> this seems to happen so often. It does. Teacher's student wins when the teacher is on the, Constantly. the panel. Yeah. So George Pearl, he was the previous no, winner. No, no. We, we're going to go old school and then a fairly recent living composer, yeah. still living. I'm drawing a total blank. Well... The previous, the older previous winner was Robert Ward. Oh, okay. Who served many times. Many, many times. Stalwart on the jury. Stal- <laughs> Definite stalwart member. <laughs> and then uh, Joseph Schwantner. Got it. Yeah. yeah. And then music critic David Hamilton from okay. The Nation. So those were the three winner or three members mm-hmm. of the jury that year. So still having a preponderance of the previous winners helping to choose the new winners, which yes. we've seen as a... A strong tradition in the Pulitzer. Yep. Well, the critics were not as kind no. <laughs> to this work as the Pulitzer board was. So when it, uh, Donald Hennehan wrote his review, or a good friend Donald Hennehan <laughs> wrote his review in the New York Times, uh, you knew it was not going to go well when he starts it. An artist need not be original to be important. Ooh. You knew it was not going well. Uh, but he goes on to say, if originality may not be necessary, some sort of convincing amalgam of style is... It was this lack of felt conviction in employing older models that weakened John Harbison's flight into Egypt, a cantata of the Riverside Symphony under George Rothman's direction presented in New York premiere Monday evening at Alice Tully Hall. And he goes on to say, 
The 15-minute work for chamber orchestra, small mixed chorus, and two vocal soloists undertook to express, in the composer's word, the dark side of Christmas. A promising idea, certainly. (laughs) Unfortunately, Mr. Harbison writes as ungratefully for the voice as for the orchestra. His tonally vague orchestral and choral music ended by sounding merely gray and without vitality, while the drab tone of the recitation muted whatever impact the narrative had in the biblical text. Despite obvious skill of workmanship, the piece added up to a series of historical feints and illusions rather than a cohesive musical experience. Ooh. That is one of the harsher reviews yeah. we've read for a Pulitzer winner. It is not even damning with faint praise. That is here. just straight out <laughs> damning. <laughs> Uh, yeah. How do you feel about that? It does not match my experience of the piece. No, I don't think so. Uh, certainly not the part about it being drab and gray and without vitality. I don't agree with that at all. I mean, those trombones, plenty uh, yeah, of vitality it's right very, there. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And lots. You know, there's, there's some interesting colors, too. So I don't agree with that. Uh, a prom, uh, you know, so he didn't have a problem with the... The origin or the idea of the piece, he liked the mm-hmm. the subject, but the ungratefully for the voice as the orchestra. I think that's true. I think even in our interview, if I remember, Harbison talks about how difficult his music is yeah. to play. So, and it was very hard in the brass quintet. So, it could maybe that is seen as a negative because it means complex and I can't understand. Yeah. Well, and clearly listening, I mean, just the little choral part yeah. that I played. I mean, it's tough. Very tough. Yeah. Very hard, especially for um, what you would assume would probably not be a fully professional choir. I mean, the right. Cantata Singers had some pros in there, but also had just community members from the Boston area. So he's writing for a group of people who some of them would have found this very difficult, I can oh, imagine. Yeah. And you can even hear the very high, the sopranos just reaching <laughs> for those notes. Uh, so yeah, I completely understand that as well. Mm-hmm. So... What about you? Oh, boy. All right. Hit or miss. Heard from Donald Hinehan. Yeah. <laughs> what does Dave Thurmeyer think? Well, this was a tough one. I struggled with this piece for a while and deciding what to make of it. And I tried a bunch of times. And I really tried with the text and working it through. Uh, I think in the end, I have to give it a miss. Mm-hmm. I think it's... I don't know. Choral music isn't my thing anyway to begin with, so that's already a, a hurdle to climb. But it just—I liked moments. I liked a lot of like the trombone moments, and I liked some of the, the recitation. But it, for me, it just—it didn't hold together very well. So I had a harder time with this piece. Yeah. How about you? Well, I'm the opposite. <gasps> oh, <laughs> amazingly. Oh, wow. Um, it's not an amazing over-the-top hit. It wasn't a surprise like. I don't know, like the deja vu when we listened to that oh, piece yeah. that we were so shocked by because we hadn't it came out of nowhere for us. Yeah. Um, but I think I the eclecticism actually worked for me in this case, hmm. and and the sectionality actually worked for me in this case. And I think that what carried me through was the strength of the orchestral writing. Aha. Uh-huh. I think the colors that he was pulling from uh, really kind of spoke to me. The choral part kind of left me cold. Um, but I liked what the narrator was doing. I thought that the the rhythms that the narrator was doing was very snappy and actually matched the spoken rhythm of the text if you're just to read it out loud. So it communicated it pretty effectively. But really, it was the it was the hmm. orchestral writing. Well, I, maybe it's uh, that totally makes sense. Maybe it's I, I've always had a difficult time with late Stravinsky those choral pieces mm-hmm. of Abraham and Isaac. They're pretty tough for me. So maybe I it gets kind of lumped into this category too. But I've, yeah, I, I mean, it has its moments, and mm-hmm. it's not like some of the, not the super miss that I gave one of our recent pieces. This is definitely, it just 
quite not enough, but yeah. uh, I understand why you could see it that way for sure. Well, that is it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about John Harbison. Also look for our bonus episode featuring our interview with John Harbison, which will be coming out in the next few weeks as well. Finally, follow us on Facebook and I guess X at H Pulitzers <laughs> for links between the episodes. And be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help people find the show. Finally, Join us next episode when we'll discuss the first solo piano work to ever win the Pulitzer, 12 New Etudes by William Bolcom. Till then, keep listening. 